LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm alone in the studio today. What I do have for you, however, is a conversation I had with documentary filmmaker Matt Tiernauer, who's the director most recently of two films that I very much enjoyed, Studio 54, which is currently playing at select theaters in LA and expanding across the US soon, and another film, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. In this interview, we kind of touch on all different kinds of things, looking at kind of queer or in Turnhour's phrase, kind of pansexual, sexual spaces and experiences from both Scotty Bauer's period working as uh, what we would call today a pimp in the 1940s and 50s Hollywood to then the kind of decadent and very pansexual dance floor world of Studio 54. So I really hope you enjoy it. I loved this conversation. We're speaking today with documentary filmmaker Matt Tiernauer. Matt is an award-winning director and a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, where he writes about film and photography, among other subjects. He joins us today near the end of what has been an incredible year-long run in which he's released two fantastic new documentaries. The first of these was Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood, a look at the wildlife of Scotty Bowers, a sort of Hollywood hookup artist who supplied pretty young things to the screen stars of the 1940s and 1950s. His latest film, Studio 54, looks behind the scenes at the infamous nightclub that dominated the New York and global party scenes in the late 1970s. Anchored by a groundbreaking long interview with Stephen Rubell's more limelight-resistant partner, Ian Schrager, the film is playing at select theaters in L.A. and expanding nationwide across the U.S. very soon. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you. So let's jump into the new film on Studio 54. How did you get started with this project? And most importantly, I'm wondering how you convinced Ian Schrager, who has never talked about this history, to open up to you in a very expansive, long interview. I've known Ian Schrager for a long time. Okay. Actually, he was the subject of my first feature for Vanity Fair. The Delano Hotel was opening, and Schrager and the designer, Philippe Stark, made this extraordinary interior of this place. And I wrote about it at the time. And Schrager and I stayed in touch over the years because we're both design and architecture obsessives. But I realized I never asked him about Studio 54. And I think people that do something great earlier in their career don't like to be asked about it because it's the thing everyone asks them about, number one. <laughs> and very quickly, we should tell listeners in case they don't know. So Ian Traeger, after Studio 54 collapsed, Obviously, he served time and then came back and rebranded himself effectively as the first creator of boutique hotels and then kind of created this concept around the world. So, had a whole second very successful career as a boutique hotel designer and entrepreneur and That's owner, right. right? Yeah, absolutely. A real estate developer now defying the there are no second acts in American life. Exactly. But because he was having this and still is having this great second act, he didn't really care to talk about the studio, which mm. has only grown in its myth, but was very painful for him because it had, as you've alluded to, a crash and burn that was as sudden as its overnight success. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what I mean, because the other thing that's interesting to me is that it's now 40 years after that history, almost. Because mm -hmm. the club opens in 1977, closes in early 1980. That's right. right. So kind of what was it like talking to him 
about that experience and what sort of perspective did he have on it 40 years later? Well, as you've alluded to, he needed some convincing to open up. He was willing to talk to me about it and was willing to do the film. Mm. In fact, was wondering aloud to me one day whether it would be a good idea to do a documentary about studio. My response was, well, if you talk and open up about it, it's a great idea because this is oddly untapped just because you were the surviving co-founder of it and you never talked. We get ahead of ourselves here, but Steve Rubell, who was the public face of the club, Ian was the Mr. Inside to Rubell's Mr. Outside, tragically died, Rubell did, of complications from HIV AIDS Mm -hmm. in 1989. So another reason why this story was kind of on ice for so many years. Not that people weren't constantly talking about it and writing about it, but they never had the authoritative inside narrative from Schrager. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I think I find the most interesting about, well, there's many things that are interesting about the documentary, but I kind of loved the nuts and bolts of how they put together this like unprecedented club, right? Mm -hmm. And probably something that, I think even in the clubs of like the kind of the meatpacking district clubs of the late 90s, early 2000s, never quite achieved, like Bungalow, for example, never achieved quite the type of notoriety or the stage shows that studio did. Well, with all due respect to Amy Sacco, uh, (laughs) the founder and owner of Bungalow 8, who's a force of nature herself Mm -hmm. and a friend of mine. Studio 54 is the greatest nightclub of all time. Yeah. I mean, there's just nothing that touches it in the modern era. You could say, oh, the Stork Club or something like that, but that was a kind of different genre of nightclub. This redefined the whole concept, and it's in the height of the disco era. It defined the era of the Mm, mid to late mm -hmm. 70s, really, in New York City, certainly, and really in the culture at large. Yeah. New York has changed utterly since then, by the way. I mean, this was really the key to the origin story of Studio. We're talking about 1977. It's the Carter administration. It doesn't seem like glamour, the Carter years. (laughs) But in fact, during the low ebb of New York City itself, when the city was on the verge of bankruptcy, ridden with crime, the Bronx is burning at this time, 8th Avenue, which is, you know, feet away from where Studio 54 was on West 54th Mm -hmm. Street, is peep shows and prostitution. 54th Street itself was one of the great mugging blocks of the city. You talk about that in the film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the world of New York City and Manhattan was a different place then. And there were a lot of abandoned theaters in that area at the time. This was also the moment when two ambitious kids from the outer boroughs, Brooklyn in this case, could dream big and jump over the East River into Manhattan and say they were going to start the greatest nightclub ever to exist and actually do it. And they did it in an abandoned theater, which they readapted into this space that was the first really immersive nightclub disco experience. They had six weeks to build it because they got a hold of the theater in the kind of like the spring of 77. And in New York, all the beautiful people, so-called, go to the country all summer long on the weekends. So they wanted to be up and running in the spring so they could get that crowd in there. So they built it in six weeks' time. Opening night, they had to put all the security outside because they thought the crowd would break down the door. It was an instant (laughs) success. They went from nobodies to being the arbiters of New York society overnight and really world 
society because yeah. the studio is a worldwide. But people were flying in just to go to the club. Absolutely, that's not an exaggeration yeah. at all. Uh, the other thing that was happening in New York at the time that's a bit forgotten is that Europe was a very dangerous place at the time. There was a big spike mm. in terrorism in the 70s in Italy, the Red Brigades, for instance, Bader Meinhof in Germany. So the aristocrats of Europe sent their kids very frequently to be educated in New York at Columbia and NYU and, you know, Eastern Seaboard schools. All of those people who are tongue-in-cheek called Eurotrash <laughs> would go to studio. And they comprised a great segment of the population, which mm. then spread the word about studio and helped make it an international phenomenon. The people really would fly in just to go to. People would fly from California for <laughs> a day or the night to go to studio. People would frequently fly. I've met a lot of people from Toronto who said there was a flight, People's Express, which was a budget airline at the time, and you could fly for like $14 from Toronto to New York City. And people, young people I met young at the time in Toronto said, oh yeah, every weekend, People's Express, and I wouldn't even get a hotel. I'd just stay up for 48 hours. <laughs> yeah, sleeping wasn't something that you were concerned about when you went to studio, Well, how I could imagine. you sleep with that yeah. much cocaine coursing <laughs> through your system? Okay, so maybe the cocaine explains my next question. Not for me, but for your subjects. But one of the things that I... It's a kind of common trope when we cover studios' history, but I'm still fascinated by how kind of reckless and ingenious both Ian and Steve and their kind of even more silent partner, Jack Duchesne, were. I mean, so at the beginning, right, they didn't have a liquor license. So they were renewing every single day a catering permit in order to be able to serve alcohol. The liquor license thing becomes a problem later that through the help of Roy Cohn, who's a fascinating character in all of this, they get over that hitch. And then there's the big thing, like the tax evasion and the skimming. Mm. How was it that they were able to act effectively like that recklessly? I mean, was it just that money was flowing in or the fame and the sensorium of all of it just kept everything afloat? The whole thing's really like a fever dream. You know, it never should have been successful, really. It was done with a kind of spontaneity that just shouldn't have worked, really. These guys didn't have any reputation before. One incredible footnote is that Rubel was running a chain of steak restaurants and not even good ones. Which called... I didn't know until <laughs> seeing the documentary, which is Yeah, the origins of it are incredibly improbable. I mean, he's <laughs> running steak loft restaurants, which aren't doing well. Schrager's an attorney. Their silent partner is a Syrian Jewish businessman from Brooklyn who has like an odd lots business. And they owned a discotheque in Queens called the Enchanted Garden. The Syrian guy, Jack Duchesne, had a bar mitzvah at this disco. And they said, oh, let's hit him up for money. and Maybe he'll pay for our next venture, which was going to be the yet unnamed Studio 54. I mean, the origins of this are not exactly the stardust glamour that you would expect. They were nobodies, so they just put their all into it. They did have a great idea. They wanted to build this thing in a grand space, which was a disused theater that had a certain old faded glamour to it, and they leaned into that. So they had Broadway lighting designers do it. The dance floor was where the stage was. There was no venue really like this before, and 
the kinetic energy of that club scene that exploded within this theater was so memorable, in part because the late 70s was a very permissive time. So mm-hmm. drugs were rather public affairs and sexual expression could happen out in the open as well in the New York of this period. Remember, we're in the sexual revolution still after the advent of the birth control pill in the early 60s and what's coming here in the early 80s is, of course, the HIV-AIDS crisis, right. which rings down the curtain on this period of relative freedom, which studio symbolizes. And studio is also kind of the, another way of seeing that history, I think, is studio is the apotheosis of a kind of burgeoning gay liberation movement that was all very sex positive and that there was no such thing as excess. But on that note, one of the things that I think I was struck by is the sense of Studio 54 as what I would call, I guess, like a selective utopia, right? There's that famous, the quote from Andy Warhol, where he says that it was a dictatorship at the door, but then an utter democracy when you got inside. Um, and one of the things that that strikes me is that like once you've made it past the door, right, so it is only going to be kind of like beautiful people or celebrities or people of note. It seems like kind of a democratic free-for-all in almost the best kind of way. Like it's gay people, straight people, women, men, people of color, white people, you know, all types of people. The chic and the freak, right? So is that true or is that my way of dressing up a kind of nostalgia for a thing that I didn't experience? No, I think that's very true. I was never there. I grew up in L.A. (laughs) and was in the second grade when all this started. But I've talked to enough people who remember enough and are reliable enough to characterize this. If you read the Warhol diaries, there's enough Mm. information in there also. Warhol did have the great adage, a dictatorship at the door and a democracy on the dance floor, I think it went. He was there every night. There is a contradiction to it. The Velvet Rope, which was kind of perfected at Studio 54, created this selection process at the door, which Steve Rubell presided over himself. And then he had a deputy named Mark Benneke, who was the still-remembered doorman of studio. He was 19 years old at the time. <laughs> Again, more improbability. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. When they attained their popularity instantly, Rubell would stand outside. He was very short, so he'd get up on a, like a fire stand pipe that was next to the door. It's still there if you walk by the theater, which, by the way, is now back to being a Broadway theater again. It's mm-hmm. a roundabout theater company, I think. Rubell would stand on this fire spigot and look over the crowd and pick people, seemingly at random at first, but then there seemed later to be a method to the madness. It was people that looked like they'd be a good time inside. Of course, if you were famous and the right kind of famous person, you breezed right by. Liza Minnelli is a right. great example Bianca of Jagger. Bianca Jagger, yeah. the, really the Farrah Fawcett, kind of like the one-name stars of the moment, Cher, Liz. They were all in there, and they wanted them there, and they solicited that. But the people who were the core constituents of the club were generally gay guys who had a lot of style and looks and verve, and the women who hung around them, who were generally quite pretty, fashion-world-adjacent people. This was a big population of New York. And one thing I realized is that famous people felt comfortable around that crowd because they were frequently the makeup artists and the hairstylists. So they were used to kind of servicing the celebrity industrial complex 
of which studio became the public-private living room <laughs> of this scene. <laughs> I like that, yeah. And remember also, the disco culture was relatively fresh at the time. It had been underground, a extraordinary fusion of African-American dance culture and gay party culture that blended. And it was hard to believe now with hindsight. It was the hottest thing going, and it was sort of an underground culture. Studio brought it above ground. The Velvet Rope, one footnote to the Velvet Rope, which is seems to be of endless fascination to people. First of all, it's ruined all of our lives because every <laughs> club now has a doorman that just makes going out miserable. In right. Opinion, unless you're on the list. The Velvet Rope existed, but it was a method for gay clubs to keep straight guys out. Mm. That's how it was deployed in New York. And probably vice squads, too, like to suss out a little bit like who was coming in the in Yeah, the probably was a filter for the door. But as it's been explained to me is that women like to go to gay clubs to dance because they weren't bothered. Sure. This Still was, true. <laughs> yeah, this was the era, though, the high moment of the kind of pickup scene looking for Mr. Goodbar embodies it in cinema. And the gay clubs did not want those guys killing the vibe and chatting up the girls. They wanted the pretty girls to be on the dance floor with the gay guys, and that was the energy of the night. The minute the club was infiltrated by straight guys, it killed it. Mm. So they put velvet ropes up, and they kind of sussed you out at the door. Also, they would frequently have memberships at the gay clubs to keep straight guys out. So... Rubel reconstitutes it and kind of broadens the spectrum of exclusivity. And everyone came rushing toward the door of studio anyway. So he really had to do a lot more filtering than these more obscure clubs did anyway. You know, there's in kind of the milieu that mixes there on the dance floor and becomes part of the culture that creates the dance floor scene. I kept thinking there's a moment late in the film where Niall Rogers who's talking about the kind of anti-disco fervor that immediately follows or seems to almost immediately follow and in fact be a reaction to the fall of Studio 54. He basically claims that there's a massive recession in the 70s that then caused a backlash against gays, black people, and women who were associated with this kind of more decadent elements of the disco era. It strikes me in an uncanny fashion that maybe we're living through a version of that right now as kind of queer people, people of color and women are centered in the media, right? And the kind of like spectacle of popular culture and those usually white straight men who feel left behind are reacting against that type of thing. And then the result is we get Trump. There's other illusions that your film teases out that seemed interesting to me, like that frighteningly telling end of Studio 54 is also the end of a kind of freedom and decadence that then gave way to a craven desire for money at all costs, right? It's the rise of the yuppie in the big 80s. So I guess in essence here, my question is like, how does the rise and fall of Studio kind of reflect or forecast in some ways the cultural turmoil that we might find ourselves in now? Yeah, I think it was an earlier take of a moment that we're now enduring. Mm kind of the first modern take. There were xenophobic moments all through the 20th century. Sure, of course. And misogyny and homophobia, all of that. Sure. Lavender scares and obviously the McCarthy era. Mm -hmm. 
But I think the late 70s is enough recognizable in its similarities to our times that we can look to it. And in the film, I think you can see these parallels. By the way, it was the rise of Trump in that period, too, in New York. His 70s were the precursor to the 80s. He becomes kind of part of the celebrity scape of the city in the 80s, but he's kind of noodling around in the 60s. He's kind of like tooling around in the 70s is said to have gone to studio and has said some things about his time at studio that may or may not be true involving <laughs> orgies on Ottomans and things like that. I, <laughs> I think that's literally what it was, which doesn't sound true to me, shockingly. <laughs> uh, but yes, you really are talking about, in essence, what I made the movie about. The rise of studio in 77 and 78 is the last volcanic moment of the sexual revolution. And it's a moment where gay culture is really driving the culture in the city. And in many respects, in in many places in the world, there's a kind of freedom to same sexuality emerging at that time. And dance culture was one of its kind of most exciting expressions. Mm-hmm. The studio welcomed that. And in fact, some people would even say the studio was a gay club, but it had you know, other ornamentations, but the core of it was a gay culture. What for me was more interesting, but far more dark and more tragic. In fact, my nickname for what we were doing was Disco Noir, (laughs) is that disco culture, which had been underground, when Studio was instrumental in bringing it above ground and getting a great deal of publicity, was sending out images around the country via the media who were obsessed with Studio 54, putting it on the cover of national magazines and it was in People magazine on a weekly basis in all the tabloids. The images were of gay people, same-sex couples dancing together, interracial couples on the dance floor together, people in outlandish costumes. There's one famous photo of someone dressed as a nun dancing with some sort of leather, you know, leather-attired, seemingly gay guy. Okay, so these are landing in newspapers and magazines, and the 70s are kind of pointing more toward a conservative pendulum swinging back in the 80s at this time. And politicians were demagoguing these things. Jesse Helms is a name that comes to mind. He would take avant-garde culture and then complain about it over the airwaves and demagogue it and whip up culturally conservative people into a frenzy and a backlash. Now, is this starting to sound familiar to you? (laughs) The Disco Sucks movement, which happens in the late 70s, was a racially and politically charged and culturally charged movement as well. It was kind of like Mm. a weird coalition of punk rockers with some Midwestern DJs who had been rock DJs who were pushed off the air by the rise of disco, who were able to kind of push back at the disco craze along racial and same-sex discrimination grounds. Mm. Disco sucks sort of symbolized that. There was a famous thing in Chicago at Comiskey Park called the Disco Demolition that a morning rock DJ named Steve Dahl initiated and you bring a disco record to the park and then they would blow it up after the game and everyone had disco socks banners and it looks we have film of it in the movie it looks like a riot it is a riot yeah actually everyone pours onto the field and this 
you can see there was like a fever pitch of white male anxiety, white male straight <laughs> anxiety yeah. coming up at the time. And politicians from Helms to Reagan to anyone who was kind of like trying to leverage culturally conservative votes was using this. Uh, it then... As a side note, it's yeah. fascinating how angry people get when they see other people being happy. Oh, just sure, like especially the- people who aren't white people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or same sexual Or straight, yeah, exactly. This is what Gore Vidal called the heterosexual dictatorship. I mean, you have to keep this down. <laughs> but then, and the film goes into this in depth, really tragically, at the same time these culturally conservative forces are kind of killing, out to kill disco culture and all of that it symbolizes. The HIV AIDS crisis starts to emerge in the very early 80s. It's unnamed, Mm -hmm. but it seemed to me to be just extraordinarily tragic that just as studios starts to crash and burn in 79 and in 80 when it really goes out of existence, this is really the dawn of the HIV AIDS crisis. So that permissive libertine kind of incredible period of self-expression and party culture the good times really cannot continue in the same way anymore you are listening to the larb radio hour recorded at emerson college in the heart of hollywood We've been speaking with Matt Turnauer, director of Studio 54, and Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Ben Marcus in the studio with us today. Ben's most recent book is a collection of short stories called Notes from the Fog, and Ben is going to be recommending a book for us. What book are you going to recommend? I would like to recommend a book of stories by Catherine Lacey called Certain American States. It just came out in, well, in August of 2018. And it is strange and uneasy and funny and weird and beautiful. She's such a gripping writer. And a lot of times the stories really sneak up on you. I'm really just getting to the end of it now myself, and mm-hmm. I know that I want to go back to it. And I just don't see anyone really writing like her. Um, mm. I'd read some of her earlier books and really admired them. And these stories just seem really unique in their power, their surprise. And um, I'm just very impressed. And how did you how did you come upon this book? Well, I'd been following Catherine Lacey's work a little bit. And her previous book was a novel. There's, is that there's, right? There's a book called Nobody Is Ever Missing and a book That's called right. The Answers. And I'd read both of those and had gotten to know her work a little bit because I was reading for um, Granta Magazine's mm-hmm. uh, Young Novelists list. And just was very taken by her voice, but what she's doing in the stories, too, is also a little bit different. And so you you see this kind of growth. And there's a kind of bravery in what she's doing, too. I think she puts characters in kind of emotionally vulnerable situations, but she really doesn't help you out or describe them that much. So she's very content to leave you in a, I guess, in a 
in an uneasy state. I've mentioned that now a few times, and I think it's, I guess, something I really value as a reader, where I'm don't exactly understand fully what's happening, but that mm-hmm. state of incomprehension is is low enough that I I'm really gripped by it. I always admire people who can be comfortable with uneasy states. Yeah, because it takes a certain amount of bravery to do it. Yeah, yeah, and I guess I feel like it's a kind of suspense. Mm-hmm. Things are a little bit wrong in a story, and you don't you don't quite know and know what it is. And I'm not trying to suggest these are really inscrutable or overly enigmatic stories. She just, she also just has a way of making her stories matter. And I guess by by that I mean they they reach pretty deep. So when she's in psychological spaces, she's really revealing what it's like to to be a person and mm-hmm. to to be thinking and feeling. And so I like stories that kind of go after that bigger stuff rather than just maybe depicting a small moment and leaving it at that. I sense that she has these these instincts and is driven towards these spaces that are really worth showing. Tell us the name of the book again and the author. The book is called Certain American States. The author is Catherine Lacey. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Ben Marcus. His most recent book is Notes from the Fog. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Matt Turnauer, director of Studio 54, and Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Okay, so I want to come back to that. But first, let's rewind to an earlier moment of kind of sexual liberation and expression by talking about your film, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So I caught this at a screening a few months ago. It effectively follows, just for listeners who haven't seen the film, it follows Scotty Bowers, who was a very unique (laughs) type of figure. Mm -hmm. Um, Effectively, he's a hustler, like in like a very classic sense. He had a gas station that was, where is it located in a L.A.? A few blocks from where we're sitting right now on Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness. Okay, and so this was the conduit where he basically hooked up all of the, uh, first the mechanics and then basically any army buddies or other guys who would come in his orbit with very famous Hollywood actors, actresses also, producers, directors, and other kind of celebrities, right? Um, in a time when... It was a real threat to their reputations and to their careers and their finances, therefore, to be outed as gay, right? Um, so I, I'm very fascinated to just hear how you got started with that project. Mm. Uh, well, I'm an L.A. native, and as a journalist, though at the time I was based in New York, all of my stories seemed to be out here. Uh, so I had the kind of like long-distance lens on the city. Mm. And the secret histories of Los Angeles always fascinated me. L.A. hides its history and gay culture hides its history sure. moreover. So it was kind of – in L.A., it's kind of like a double whammy. Like <laughs> L.A. is so throwdown about its history and doesn't venerate it, which is part of its charm in a way. But uh, gay L.A. is really important. I mean, L.A. is as important to the gay – movement as New York and San Francisco, sure. not more. Yeah. So in the line of work uh, as a Vanity Fair uh, correspondent, I frequently did stories about older guys and sometimes women who were really, really, really um, integral to the history of L.A. Merv Griffin's one of them. He's mm. a like, 
he was, if you don't remember, the um, the number two talk show host after right. Johnny Carson in that period. A very, very famous and uh, successful man. I did a big story on him, um, and he told me about this gas station. Uh, Merv lived a double life, it turned mm-hmm. out. And he said, oh, there was a gas station on Hollywood Boulevard, and you would go there to get into trouble, which was his <laughs> euphemism. Another person I wrote about who was a gay, prominent gay figure in the uh, 40s and 50s told me that there was a gas station on Hollywood Boulevard and the cars would be lined up around the block to get in there because they were selling things other than gas. So I was thinking, well, this is a story. What yeah. is this? You oh, know, yeah. How do I find out more about this? I never really knew. People said it was on Sunset. People said it was on Hollywood. It was a bit of a chimera. So I'm with Gore Vidal one day, the great author who had a house in Hollywood Hills. He was a friend of mine, and in fact, I was his literary executor. We were chatting, and he, apropos of nothing, blurts out, I want to get in touch with Scotty. I'm like, who's Scotty? He said, Scotty was my pimp. <laughs> and uh, Which is, if you knew Gore, not so shocking that he would say something like that. And I would say, well, tell me more. And he said he owned a gas station. And I said, oh, no, really? He's like alive. This guy's dots. around. Yeah. He said, oh, yeah, he lives in Laurel Canyon. I just lost his phone number. Uh, we need to find him. You know, I, I would help Gore. As his literary executor, I'd help him with, you know, tasks like this sometimes. So I knew someone that had his number, it turned out. And uh, they got back together. They met in 1948 at the gas station where Gore was a client. And uh, stayed in touch for over decades, but it was just this one period where they were apart. That's how I met Scotty Bowers. And then next time I went to Vidal's house, Bowers was there. And uh, he had a manuscript of a memoir that uh, Vidal helped him get published in that next year. But even before the book was published, I'd asked him if he would make the movie. Because of the mutual friendship with Gore Vidal, he said yes. Mm. And then we were on our way. That Okay, so, I mean, I'll leave it to to listeners to watch the film because it is like the number of stars that you kind of have, that Scotty has these tales about is like a real laundry list. I mean, effectively, it's like opening up like an Us Weekly or People magazine today and it's like, yes, everybody in the Just Like Us, I've I've set him up with blowjobs. I've like, got, you know, he was in the trailer. Um, so one thing though that I am wondering a little bit is like, can we... Because one of the reasons that Scotty has not talked about this stuff until now is that he wanted to keep the secrets of those whom he serviced until they were gone, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. So given that there's no one really to verify much of this, like, Mm -hmm. how much of this can we really take as absolute truth? I mean, it's it's undeniable that the gas station was there, Scotty did the sorts of things that he did, but I mean in terms of the laundry list of this clientele. Oh, there's so much corroboration. Okay. Now, it is true that Cary Grant is no longer with us and wasn't really, you know, giving out the information about the menage <laughs> right. a trois with right. Randolph Scott and Scotty Bowers. But many of the hustlers who were with Cary Grant and many of the other stars, as, as long as I'm naming names, you know, we're talking about Rock Hudson, mm-hmm. uh, Randolph Scott, Tyrone Power, Spencer Tracy. These were all same sex. Uh, it was all it was mostly same sex. It was it was kind of pansexual, really. Catherine yeah. Hepburn for right. women. The hustlers who worked alongside Scotty corroborate, and uh, some of them have uh, physical evidence. Okay. So, for instance, in the film. 
Charles Lawton, who was the, the greatest character actor of his time, was married to a woman, Elsa Lanchester, who we all know as the bride of Frankenstein. And Lawton was a gay man married to a woman. But his favorite boy, Lee Shook, is still alive, and he's in the film. And he has scripts signed to him by Lawton. He has a book signed to him by Charles Lawton. And uh, he verifies. Uh, there were other guys who were sex workers at the time who knew details and corroborated Scotty's obscure details uh, that are woven into his narratives mm. that have to be true. There's just no way Scotty can know that the garden path between this house and that house had a friendship gate. And I could look on Google Earth immediately and see the path and the, st- the stone it was made out of that he describes. Right. How is he to know all of these obscure details that can sure. be verified with with the internet now instantly? And my research went much deeper than that. There were people I knew who had debriefed the male secretaries of George Cukor, and they had mm. all of this corroboration from about Scotty from those guys. Uh, Cukor never wrote a memoir, but uh, there are letters Cukor wrote to people uh, that we found where Scotty is mentioned. Okay. I knew people who were at Cukor's house. Cukor, the greatest of the directors of his period in, in, in many people's eyes and a gay man, and kind of like the mayor of under, underground gay Hollywood, had famously uh, all-male pool parties every Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I knew people uh, who, when I met them, were in their 80s who were at these parties, mm. and they knew Scotty Bowers, and they corroborated that Scotty would bring uh, boys to these parties for Cukor, et cetera. It all adds up. Gore Vidal. <laughs> corroborating. Right. There are enough people around. Uh, Scotty's tenure in LA was 45 right after the war where he was, he had been Marine, a Marine in the South Pacific in World War II. Uh, he's still around. Uh, he's now 95 and uh, he was hustling. And still very with it. Absolutely. He hustled and fixed people up from 45 until not that long ago, to be honest with you. Um, the The main sex ring was up and running through the 80s. Uh, It died down a bit during the HIV-AIDS crisis. One of the other things that kept occurring to me while I was watching the film is that, well, two things, actually. One, Scotty has this incredibly refreshing approach to sex. It's like no taboos. It's a natural human function. Mm -hmm. It's all, um, you get the sense that Scotty's basically down for whatever and whoever, (laughs) um, but in the most kind of like egalitarian and no-nonsense sort of way. This did make me wonder though, were there any stories about like, you know, so he would set people up and some of the tastes, which you get into a little bit in the film and some of the interviews, were a bit extreme. (laughs) Sure. Like the guy, I forget who it was, but the guy that likes to be tied up upside down and then like, you know, pushed into a wall over and over again or uh, something. That would be John Dahl, <laughs> a, a name celebrity, uh, the star of Rope, Hitchcock's Rope. He was extreme. He liked to be hung upside down nude from a tree in Benedict Canyon during, oh, that's right. and during a thunderstorm. Yeah. yeah, that was his proclivity. So, but I'm wondering, <laughs> were there any sense that like maybe sometimes the tricks like got in a little bit over their head or like was there any potential for abuse or was it really just kind of what it seems like on the surface which is an egalitarian hey i'm helping a buddy out like that sort of thing yeah this is a big issue because we associate prostitute and pimp with uh negative thoughts sometimes or scenarios uh 
people who are forced to do things against their will or don't want to be doing what they're doing. I found no evidence, and okay. I talked to a lot of the sex workers, uh, at least approaching 10 of the guys, actually, hmm. who were at Scotty's side from the 50s onward. And they all were very open about it. And I've never met someone more admired than Scotty Bowers from colleagues yeah. in the sex working trade to clients alike. I really never heard a, a bad word. I never heard about a sinister scenario. I could see that Scotty would have a motive to kind of make everything pretty. Um, and Sure. Um, you know, like sort of a halcyon glow to everything. And he does. But no one contradicts him, interestingly. You'd mm. think that one of these guys, I mean, he's not close to them anymore, really. He's kind of, as he would put it, buddy-buddy, but he's, they're not best friends still. They're just admiring acquaintances right. or, or, you know, distant friends now. They wouldn't have any real motive to prop him up. Sure, uh, sure. Lee Shook. Most of them don't identify as gay either, by the way, which is interesting. Interesting, yeah. Stephen Fry, who's interviewed in the film, says Scotty's pre-gay, which I think is an interesting uh, comment because we silo so much in a time of relative uh, gay freedom, in at least in big urban areas. Sure. We identify and we're proud, et cetera. But at the time, it was very different. Gay wasn't even a word with that meaning, largely. In and the Scotty 40s. was married or in kind of long-term relationships with a number, with three different women, I think? Scotty has had two marriages, more two or marriages. less. One common law and one uh, literal. And many affairs with women, of, right. uh, very meaningful affairs, uh, straight affairs. So he's truly pansexual. Dr. Kinsey sought him out and studied Right, him. that's right. And, you know, Gore Vidal was uh, interviewed by Kinsey, another guy, a client, a white shoe lawyer who's interviewed in the film, who met Scotty in the 40s, uh, was uh, interviewed by Kinsey. And these narratives went into the Kinsey report, which really opened up sexuality and it was the first kind of crack in the in the the vault door mm. of hidden human sexuality which led to the gay rights movement right and scotty was a part of that he was not just interviewed by kinsey he then worked for kinsey <laughs> bringing him around to and i love scotty's parlance gangbang parties he'd bring him to <laughs> dr kinsey to gangbang parties in west hollywood where he would study the uh, the behavior of uh, sexuality in the human male, which right. is the title of his uh, groundbreaking book. So, just to kind of wrap up the the bit about this film is: Do you think that the kind of the world that Scotty moved in and the kind of life that he lived does that still exist in contemporary Hollywood, or in kind of a like post? maybe post-gay moment is that sort is the sort of thing that he provided not as necessary uh well i think the world has changed a lot i mean i know the world has changed a lot i mean really to be gay and open in the 40s and 50s into the 60s and even the 70s and 80s to be honest but certainly during the mccarthy period mm -hmm. i mean that was it there was yeah. no you know, explaining yourself. Game over, yeah. You were done. Yeah. In Hollywood especially, there were morals clauses in the contracts. To be an out gay movie star is unthinkable. So you lived a double life, and you needed someone to facilitate if you wanted to have sexuality be a factor in your life. Mm -hmm. For the most part. I mean, I'm sure some people met 
had discreet same-sex long-term relationships and they met their partner wherever and they lived their lives. But by and large, according to Scotty and all of the other people I've talked to, um, Hollywood was a, a raucous place. It still is. That hasn't changed. And if you wanted to, you know, live out what you wanted as your authentic life, you needed someone that could keep your secrets for you. And right. Scotty Bowers was that person. We can be more open now. I, I mean, there's a lot of debate, and I am in the middle of it sometimes in interviews about <laughs> whether, you know, anything's changed. Can there be a gay, out gay leading man? This is still an open question yeah. in 2018. Yeah. Uh, probably not, to be honest with you. True. Uh, yeah. Why that is, is a complicated series of psychological uh, equations, I think. Um, Plus audience and market and sure. their psychological, like, Hollywood's know. a business. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not show art. It's show business. <laughs> show business, yeah. So that's a parallel. Mm. And there are still difficulties for people who want to live authentic, open lives. However, uh, see the movie and you'll see a very different world. And Scotty is at the center of it, which is why I wanted to make this, because I think that a millennial, for instance, has no concept uh, that it was so hard, frankly. The Vice Squad, we haven't gotten into that, prowled the streets yeah. of Los Angeles, a, a branch of the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, it was a blackmail, an extortion ring run by the LAPD targeting mostly gay men, mm -hmm. and they would raid gay bars, and uh, your life could be ruined. If you yeah. were a school teacher, they would uh, shake you down and threaten you with ruination unless you paid them to get off the charge. And uh, this was every day. This wasn't a rare occurrence. Right. Okay, so then to kind of tie both films together, and this is actually, it follows up on what you're, what you're talking about, which is that at least one thread that connects both of these films is there expression and manifestation of a cultural desire for a space in which one could be sexually free without any kind of consequences um, for one's career or reputation. And I'm wondering, in some sense, if that's even possible today. Because, you know, when we live in an age of cell phone cameras and what seems to be, you would know this better than I, but what seems to be a much more at once prurient and somewhat hostile relationship between celebrities and fans, right? In which we we crave knowing everything about them in a way that I'm not certain was true mm. in Scotty Bauer's day in quite the same way or in the same detail. Mm -hmm. So like, do these kind of free sexual spaces, do we have access to that in which you can go to some space where you experience something and it just remains there? Mm. Well, in the Scotty category, uh, what I've learned that I think is really valuable information for future generations to understand is that homosexuality was so verboten, so unspeakable, that it really could not be uttered out loud uh, or printed, basically. A lot of gay stars were safe because newspapers wouldn't print the word homosexual and later oh, gay. Yeah. It was a concept that was unthinkable or unmentionable. So this created a bifurcated society. Um, there was uh, an inside and an outside world. If you were in the walled off world of 
uh, gay Hollywood, for instance, and there were other secret gay worlds at, at, in the country at the time, but let's say sure. Hollywood, it's the subject at hand. You knew a lot because everyone protected everyone else. So I think this was a closed system and uh, everyone kept the secret. Sometimes it was called the open secret, mm. but that almost doesn't characterize it because I think if you, a lot of people just didn't want to know and they look the other way. It's sure. You see this a lot today. If you go into the American South, I have friends that live there and there are a lot of uncles who are artistic, <laughs> who live with other gentlemen and own uh, flower shops and no one talks about their same sexuality. It's Uncle Johnny's friend. You <laughs> exactly. Know, and he's, um, he's pixelated. Right. Yeah. Yes. And he's Uncle, you know, Freddie. And it's sort of like uh, we, we just look the other way or we, we walk through life with blinders on. That, if you can imagine that, that's what that world was. Mm. But what I learned is like, if you were in that world, you knew an awful lot. And then when you stepped outside of it, you didn't talk. Because you'd risk bringing down the whole house of cards if you did. You could destroy yourself and destroy all and your everybody friends. everybody else, yeah. It wouldn't, you'd be ostracized uh, in the group. So in a way, there was a freedom in, in the walled-off uh, private world. There, there was a freedom. And some of the guys I interviewed were rather elegiac about it. You mm. know? This is similar to studio, where there's, there's all these elegies to studio where it was like, well, when you were in there, you were so free. And everyone kind of was cooperating and creating this incredible group ecstasy mm -hmm. that people became addicted to. And I think it was a moment of liberation for uh, queer people. Sure. Who felt safe inside the club and might have been kind of flying their freak flag or whatever there. And I think we're more open than in the case of the old Hollywood context I'm talking mm. about, because I think it was just a more open time in the seventies sure. anyway. But I think that, uh, this, these worlds were these wonderful glitter domes and <laughs> hot houses that can't quite exist in that way anymore certainly as it pertains to studio, the age of the selfie and Instagram just yeah. changes everything, really. The, a slower, more analog culture, I think, lends itself to these types of kinetic places of gathering. And also just the fact that they are places where bodies meet in space is significant because then if you wanted to hang out with people, there was no cyber hangout happening. <laughs> right, mean, right. You had a rotary dial phone or a phone booth and that was it. Like if you wanted to see people, you went out. I mean, people lament the death of the gay bar because of this, you know, the grinder kills the gay bar. And the kismet of encounter where you're not screening people that, well, I guess the velvet rope some, somewhat does that, right? But it's that like you just meet somebody that you've never seen before, that you've seen around or something like yes, that. Yes, of course, and this leads to all sorts of things that then become more uncomfortable for people, of course, which is cruising culture and, right. you know, the, uh, the meeting people in the park. Central Park was, <laughs> uh, you know, there was something called the Rambles. The Rambles, yeah. Where you meet people out. And uh, I actually could never get my head around it. When I lived in New York, it was, I moved to New York, it was like the height of the HIV crisis. It was not 90s, not the height, but it was like the, the downhill slope right. of it. I, 
however you want to characterize it. And I was, people would say the rambles. I was like, this sounds insane. Like, why would anyone do that? But now, you know, studying an earlier period where you didn't fear death by, by virus, uh, it was a kind of very permissive time and a wilder time and a time of a kind of freedom. That also, by the way, uh, the gay culture enjoyed because, as someone points out in the Studio 54 film, no one's getting pregnant. Um, you could have sex without consequences. Right. Um, actually, to, so my last question for you is about this, which is, that is, it strikes me both films are about a life and a sexual world that kind of blossomed and flourished right before the AIDS crisis and the, and the kind of Steve Rubell dying from complications of HIV-AIDS um, and also the fact that that cl- studio closes in 1980, believe it's 1981 that we start to see the first newspaper reports of GRID, right, um, right which is the original name for HIV/AIDS. You know, this is also in Scotty's film. He says that once the epidemic had kind of really struck and they knew what it was, he actually stopped kind of hooking people up um, for a while because of that. Um, so one of the things that I'm wondering, I guess, is now that we live. We're not post-HIV. That's still a very big problem, um, and we still need more science and research to address that disease. But do you think that we've recovered kind of culturally or sexually from the AIDS crisis? Like, can we ever get—PrEP seems to be one way mm-hmm. of trying to get to that, but I'm just wondering what you think about that, since you've done so much kind of documentarian work on this earlier period. I'm not sure of the answer of that, to that. I think that PrEP, has definitely created a um, shift in people's attitudes toward sex. Whereas if you're Generation X, which I am, I had this discussion with Brett Easton Ellis on mm. his podcast, or Generation X person as well, that the for the first time you're seeing a generation that is not thinking about uh, the equation of sex and death mm-hmm. um, at every moment, yeah. <laughs> whether yeah. front of mind or back of mind. So this creates uh, a very different culture that millennials are coming up in. So it's very interesting to watch that frame shift happening kind of before our eyes over the last few years. Yeah. And it reminds me more of what I was hearing from Scotty, frankly. There was a kind of moment after, frankly, not to get too scientific here, but after the uh, invention of penicillin and the um, advent of HIV AIDS, where uh, you had this unique, really, uh, ability to walk away from any sexual encounter without any um, lasting consequences. The birth control pill even, like, steps that up. Gore Vidal used to talk about this all the time, actually. Uh, it was one of his themes when people asked him about HIV-AIDS. He was mm. saying, you remember pre-penicillin, there were lots of horrible things that could happen to you. And he, he liked to remind people of that. Uh, but focusing on this moment of, of the Scotty Bowers narrative in the film, he's running this incredibly complex uh, web of, kind of uh, sex hookups in the city, uh, fixing up 
30 people a day out of the gas station doing six tricks himself and not thinking anything of it. He's not even gay. I yeah. mean, he's he's probably pansexual. Sure. He identifies more as homosexual. So to talk to a creature <laughs> such as that <laughs> and quiz him on, you know, what issues of uh, health and safety and, you know, <laughs> did that play into, you know, how you considered what you were doing, it, it was irrelevant to him. He doesn't... He doesn't even consider it when he's talking about it. And you think, well, this is someone who was in his early 20s in the 1940s when penicillin was around. And it was probably, I think, a lot of people that are survivors of that period who enjoyed themselves um, think of it as a a really golden time that um, the culture has... uh, necessarily had to uh, readjust. I do think we're, we're in an interesting moment right now that I hope continues because it seems to be more um, sex positive yeah, than yeah, the uh, era that we, we grew up in where there was, even if there was like a kind of forced positivity uh, <laughs> to sex and your outlook to it, you really could never get around the idea that um, sex could kill you. Yeah. So we'll end it there. Um, We have been speaking with Matt Turnauer, director most recently of Studio 54, which is showing in select theaters in Los Angeles right now and expanding soon across the U.S. Thanks so much for talking with us, Matt. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 